This is VOA News. I'm Marissa Melton. The White House says U.S. President Joe Biden will meet virtually on Friday with G7 leaders and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and announce new sanctions against those aiding Russia's war effort. The same group came together and imposed sanctions on Russia last year, just hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin launched his invasion of Ukraine. White House spokesperson Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters Thursday that the leaders on Friday will discuss how to continue supporting Ukraine and how to increase pressure on Russia to end its aggression. Jean-Pierre said the new sanctions will include Russian banks, technology and defense sectors, and will impact both people and companies involved in the conflict. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a video address Thursday that pro-Moscow forces had again shelled the southern city of Kherson, this time cutting off heat for 40,000 people. He said the situation is quite dangerous in some places in the south, while in the east, it is very difficult and even painful. Zelensky said repair work in Kherson, which is being shelled on a daily basis, would continue until heat was restored. And Russia on Thursday claimed Ukraine is ramping up efforts to invade Transnistria, Moldova's Moscow-backed separatist region. Russia pledged a response. The launch of the, since the launch of the full-scale assault against Ukraine a year ago, the Kremlin has been accused of raising tensions in Transnistria to destabilize Russia, uh, Ukraine and Moldova. But the Russian defense ministry released a statement Thursday saying Kyiv is the one stirring up trouble. Russia claimed that Ukrainian troops are massing at the border with Moldova's breakaway region. This is VOA News. Iran, for the first time, has directly acknowledged an accusation that it enriched uranium to 84% purity. AP correspondent Karen Chamas has more. The Islamic Republic recognized the claim made by international inspectors that it had enriched uranium to 84%. Such a high percentage would put the nation more than ever to weapons-grade material. The acknowledgement was made by a news website linked to the highest reaches of Iran's theocracy. The latest development renews pressure on the West to address Tehran's nuclear program, which had been contained by the 2015 nuclear deal that America unilaterally withdrew from in 2018. I'm Karen Chamas. Northern Irish police have arrested a fourth man early on Friday in relation to the attempted murder of a senior detective shot in front of his son in the town of Oma. Northern Ireland Police Chief Simon Byrne said Thursday that three men had been arrested Following the shooting of the senior detective, Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell is in critical condition, having undergone surgery overnight. He was shot a number of times by two gunmen while putting footballs in his car after finishing a coaching session with an under-15 soccer team. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price addressed the issue on Thursday. Uh, our thoughts are uh, with the family, friends, and uh, colleagues uh, of the officer at this time. We'll continue uh, to be in touch uh, with our uh, colleagues and our counterparts on this. While a 1988 peace deal largely ended three decades of sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, police officers are still sporadically targeted by splinter groups of mostly Irish nationalist militants 
opposed to Britain's rule over the region. A federal judge has handed singer R. Kelly a 20-year prison sentence for his Chicago convictions of child pornography and the enticement of minors for sex. In a victory for Kelly, the court said Thursday he will serve 19 years of that sentence simultaneously with his 30-year sentence imposed last year in New York. Only one year of prison time for the Chicago convictions will follow the New York term. Prosecutors have requested that the 56-year-old Kelly serve the full Chicago sentence after he completed the New York term. Harvey Weinstein, the once powerful Hollywood producer who was brought down by multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, was sentenced on Thursday to 16 years in prison for the 2013 rape of an actress. Uh, Weinstein will serve the sentence after completing a 23-year sentence for sexual misconduct in New York. And Paris lit up the Eiffel Tower in the blue and yellow colors of the Ukrainian flag on Thursday as Ukraine's allies around the world prepare to mark the one-year anniversary of the war between Ukraine and Russia. Marissa Melton, BOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, February 24th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Nigeria's Electoral Commission says the country is ready for Saturday's vote despite security concerns. They have assured us of their preparedness to adequately secure the election. This is very important as it will assure voters of their safety during the elections, which is cardinal to voter turnout. We are speak with the Deputy Inspector General of the Nigerian Police. Afrobarometer says most Africans show unwavering commitment to democracy and democratic norms. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden offers hope and encouragement in Namibia's capital, Vinhok. South Sudan's president calls for 2.3 million refugees to return home. On this first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, African countries are impacted the most. Right now, about 828 million people around the world go to bed hungry each night, and the conflict in Ukraine only worsens this. Those stories plus Samson O'Malley's polls and our Black History Month facts for today are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Nigeria's Electoral Commission says the country is ready for Saturday's presidential and parliamentary elections despite cattle violence in the run-up to the polls. The head of the commission briefed reporters in the capital on Thursday. Timothy Obiasu reports from Abuja. The head of Nigeria's Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, assured journalists Thursday that the commission and the country are prepared for the voting. INEC chairman Mahmoud Yakubu said the commission has begun dispatching sensitive materials to Nigerian states. He said INEC has been working with Nigeria's security forces to provide maximum security for staff and election materials. They have assured us of their preparedness to adequately secure the election. This is very important as it will assure voters of their safety during the elections, which is cardinal to voter turnout. We have also had to consult with the Nigerian National Petroleum Company Limited on the fuel situation. Likewise, the Central Bank of Nigeria has assured us that it will provide us with the necessary small amount of cash that we require from our budget to make payment for some critical service providers for the election. 
This is the most contested election in history of Nigeria's democracy, with 18 candidates running to be president, including three front-runners. Nigeria has been struggling to stem widespread violence and kidnappings perpetrated by armed gangs. Security problems have gotten worse in the run-up to the polls, with several attacks and arson recorded on INEC offices. Officials say they have recorded over 50 attacks in all since the last elections in 2019. Meanwhile, police say a senatorial candidate was killed early Thursday by gunmen in southeast Enugu state on his way from a campaign event. This week, the government's National Peace Committee hosted an event where candidates signed a peace accord. Former head of state and chairman of the NPC, Abdusalami Abubakar, spoke during the event. Issues of major concern that have the potential to negatively impact on the integrity are emerging. One of such issues is the spread of fake news. Thus, fake news and misinformation continue to pose a significant threat to 2023 general elections. Nigeria is also dealing with shortages of cash and fuel, and experts say that changes the dynamics of the polls. President Muhammadu Buhari spoke at the peace signing ceremony in Abuja. I am aware of the deep concerns which have been raised about the conduct of the 2023 general elections and the outcomes they may throw up. However, since my assumption of office, we have worked so hard to ensure that we pass on a legacy of free, fair, credible, safe, and peaceful elections. INEC says about 150,000 election observers already in Nigeria, including delegates from the African Union, European Union, and the U.S. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Nigerian police are calling on voters to be respectful of officials of the Independent National Electoral Commission, also known as INEC, tasked with administering Saturday's vote. This after announcing the deployment of police personnel across the country in preparation for Saturday's presidential, senatorial, and House of Representatives elections, as well as the gubernatorial elections in two weeks. VOA's Peter Clotty on special assignment to the Nigerian elections spoke with Adeleke Adeyinka, the Deputy Inspector General of Police. There's going to be restriction of movement on the day of the election and um, to protect our people, the way we have planned it or planned it is this. Corridors leading into the election area, into cities, into states, will be manned by armed men, most especially the Nigerian army. While on the election day itself, we are going to ensure that each polling booth in Nigeria is police. Now, DIJ uh, Adeleke, during the election period itself, both the presidential and the uh, gubernatorial, senatorial and all, what will the police want to see and what will the police not want to see during the election that period? That is from the people. Yes. Um, I only appeal to our citizens that uh, we should abide by the electoral laws. We should respect our INEC officials because basically our own duty on election day while providing security is to ensure that INEC facilities are protected, INEC officials are protected, our polling areas are protected. So people should come out and exercise their franchise 
We should be peaceful. We should be law-abiding. If there is any restriction order for that particular day, we should abide by it. Go, get accredited, vote, go home. And at the same time, let me add, like I told you before, part of the election itself is the aftermath of the election. When we want to rejoice, let's rejoice peacefully. When we want to mourn our losses, let's mourn peacefully. Then we have a good election. That was Adeleke Adeyinka, Nigeria's Deputy Inspector General of Police. He was speaking with VOS Peter Clote on special assignment to cover Nigeria's elections. As Nigeria, Africa's most populous country, votes tomorrow, Saturday, in presidential and parliamentary elections, Afro Barometer says Africans show unwavering commitment to democracy and democratic norms. In its 2021-2022 survey released this week, the Pan-African Research Network says most Africans favor elections, media freedom, and presidential term limits. Joe Asunka is the CEO of Afro Barometer. He shares some of the findings with us. Africans are strongly in support of democracy. They always say they prefer democracy to any other form of government. And in the most recent survey where we have data complete for 20 countries, this includes Nigeria, we have almost 70% telling us that they prefer democracy to any other form of government. And this has been a, such a solid majority across all the countries that we survey. Africans generally reject one-man rule. They reject one-party rule. And they also reject military. Particularly as Nigeria goes to the poll, normally you see young people do not participate in these kind of surveys. What did you find in terms of the participation of young people and their desire for democracy? What we see by and large in Nigeria, the support for elections, overwhelming majority, more than 70% say they support elections as the best mechanism for choosing leaders. In terms of participation, there is a lot of enthusiasm now. You can see there's a lot of movement, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Of course, this happens in the major cities. But in our data, you know, we are still trying to work out and get the details of separating young people from older generations and do some comparison. But what I can tell you is that often when we have these results, it's hardly any difference between older people and young people when it comes to democratic norms or commitments to democratic norms. If the survey shows most Africans prefer democracy, what do they say or did they say anything about governance? About 10 years ago, people used to choose the effective over an accountable government. But over time, since then, we've seen the demand for accountable governance actually go up and has increased about 10 percentage points across the continent. And so as at this point, we have a solid majority, almost close to 70%, telling us that they prefer a government that is accountable to them, even if they are not very effective. And we think this is kind of a deepening of democratic norms on the continent. And that's a key governance indicator we have used over time. What did you find about term limits? Because you have, in some African countries, some leaders have been in office for so many years. I'm glad that you asked this question. Actually, this is one indicator where we find that in all the countries, majority say they want their presidents to be limited by two terms, that a president should not serve more than two terms. Joe Asunka is the CEO of Afrobarometer. He was speaking with me from Ghana's capital, Accra. (music) 
You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, February 24. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Still to come on our program, Samson O'Malley's post and our Black History Month facts for today, Friday. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden was visibly moved during a visit on Thursday to an informal settlement near Namibia's capital, where she spent time listening to young beneficiaries of U.S.-funded programs describe their tales of challenge and triumph in a nation that ranks as one of the world's most unequal societies. Viewers Anita Powell is traveling with the First Lady and reports from Vinhoek, Namibia. As a sudden afternoon storm beat down furiously on the metal roofs of the hastily constructed Katatura neighborhood, First Lady Jill Biden listened intently as young people described their work with the local Hope Initiatives program, which receives U.S. grant money. VOA asked her if she would take these stories back to Washington and lobby for an extension of the PEPFAR program, which, for two decades, has provided crucial support for nations struggling with the burden of HIV and AIDS. I don't know whether I'll be lobbying Congress, but certainly I will be taking it back and we'll see where it goes. I'll work with my staff and and see where we'll take it. Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, PEPFAR is, is, I mean, it started how many years ago with George Bush, but uh, I mean, it's just look how many lives it has saved and how many lives it will continue to save. It's what, 20 years now, I think? Yeah, 20 years. So it's an amazing program. Earlier in the day, Biden praised Namibia's vibrant democracy at a pomp-filled, wine-laden, dignitary-heavy state luncheon with Namibian First Lady Monica Gengos and her husband, President Hage Gango. I'm proud to be standing here, standing with a strong democracy, and as Monica said yesterday, a young democracy working together. As Joe said at the summit, African voices, African leadership, and African innovation are all critical to addressing the most pressing global challenges and realizing the vision we all share, a world that is free. Thursday also happens to be the 30th anniversary of the sitting of Namibia's first post-independence upper house of parliament. Gengos, a Namibian entrepreneur and lawyer who was the president's third wife, said she invited the U.S. First Lady to visit after meeting at December's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington. Of course, there will always be differences. But what is important is what the Biden presidency represents, and that is decency, democracy, and diplomacy. This luncheon is to celebrate connection and possibility. We are connected by democratic ideals, a commitment to improving the lives of our respective people, and a dedication to embracing win-win partnerships. On Friday, Jill Biden plans to speak to university students about youth empowerment. She's the first White House official to visit Namibia after President Joe Biden last year pledged to send administration officials to the continent. She follows Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who visited Africa earlier this year. But as an unelected official, the First Lady also brings a soft touch to this visit. As she prepared to leave Katatura, she made an unscheduled stop on the street, emerging from her SUV with a navy blue tote bag. Scores of small children, many in clothes that were torn or dirty, swarmed her as she handed out small boxes of M&Ms 
bearing President Joe Biden's seal and signature. She and granddaughter Naomi quickly passed out every box until she was faced with an empty bag and a young boy, his eyes wide. She motioned that she was out of candy, and he turned away. Wait, she said to the little boy. He turned back. She handed him the tote bag. Nidapal VOA News, Windhoek, Namibia. South Sudan's president is appealing to the more than 2 million South Sudanese refugees living in neighboring countries to start returning home. Salva Kiir says his government would provide returning refugees with the necessary security. Sheila Pony reports from the South Sudanese capital, Juba. There are more than 2.3 million South Sudanese living as refugees in nearby countries such as Kenya, Uganda and Sudan. Speaking Wednesday in Juba, Kir said repatriating those citizens is at the top of the government's priority list. The government will provide security and would work jointly with partners to organize logistics around what is needed to resettle successfully in, uh, in those areas. President Kir made the comments while speaking to representatives of South Sudan's large population of, of internally displaced people. Kir said the country also intends to resettle the IDPs through not necessarily in the areas from which they came. For those who cannot go back to their areas of residence, we have spoken to authorities in, in the state where IDPs camps are located to set aside land to resettle them. Pope Francis had a similar gathering with IDP leaders in Juba during his visit to South Sudan earlier this month. Kir pledged the government would provide the IDPs with security, even though he acknowledged that it would take a lot of convincing for them to leave their current protected areas. Many South Sudanese IDPs were displaced by the 2013 civil war that broke out when Kiri's forces clashed with those of opposition leaders, Riyak Machar. James Cook, member of the National Parliament, echoed the president's message of declaring 2023 as a year of reconciliation, forgiveness and development. This message must be sent across to all the people of South Sudan. To know that this year, the president of this republic has forgiven people and he should be forgiven. In calling for the resettlement of refugees and IDPs, Kir said nothing about South Sudan's continued political or economic challenges. The country has yet to fully implement the 2018 peace accord that ended the civil war and parts of the country are dealing with chronic violence. Sheila Oponi for VOA News, Juba, South Sudan. Today, February 24, is the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The UN General Assembly overwhelmingly passed the resolution yesterday calling on Russia to withdraw its forces from Ukraine and for peace to return to the region. 141 countries supported the resolution and 32 countries abstained, including South Africa. Eritrea and Mali sided with Russia. Some humanitarian groups working to stave off acute hunger in Africa say they have faced big funding shortfalls, partly because those funds have been diverted to Ukraine.
Tom Pirate Costa is the spokesperson for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Central and West Africa. He tells viewers Carol Van Dam that African countries were directly impacted by the war. Right now, about 828 million people around the world go to bed hungry each night. And the conflict in Ukraine only worsened this. It took vulnerabilities that existed at the local, regional, and global level that were already there because of conflict, uh, climate change, chronic inequality, the COVID-19 pandemic, and threw accelerant on it. I think most of your listeners are going to know that prior to the war, Russia and Ukraine exported nearly a third of the world's barley and wheat, more than 70% of its its, uh, sunflower oil, and a large percentage of of corn or maize. Um, And the war made it even more difficult for this to get to market. And it increased the price at the local and regional level. Talk about so, how that how that changed for the people who live in Africa, their lives on a day-to-day basis. And what countries specifically are we talking about mostly? Yeah, so it's it's a number. We've focused in on, on the horn and beyond. But I'd say before the war, almost all, 90% plus of uh, Somalia's wheat imports were coming from Ukraine and Russia. And so now with inflation, rising food costs, and, and the conflict, um, plus the record drought that's happening in Somalia, we're, in, we're looking at a terrible situation where it's becoming even more expensive to get vital food aid. Um, but it's not just limited to Somalia. We've seen an in, in, in inflationary environment impacting food prices in Malawi and Zambia. In Malawi, food prices have gone up 142% since 2020, only aggravated by the conflict. And in Zambia, it's 120%. When you talk about 120 some percent and 140 some percent inflation for food prices, how do people even survive? How do they put food on their table? They're making really difficult decisions on a on a family and individual basis. So it's requiring families to to really cut aggressively the number of calories they intake, how much food sits on their table. That's Tom Pyrecosta, the spokesperson for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Central and West Africa. He was speaking to my colleague Carol Van Dam from Dakar, Senegal. It is time now for Daybreak Africa Sports, and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sports with the African Games scheduled to take place in Ghana in August. Games organizers have postponed Africa's version of the Olympics until next year after an agreement between major stakeholders running the multi-sport competition. Ghana's efforts to host the 13th edition have been hampered by an ongoing disagreement over marketing rights which has delayed the completion of the required facilities. Speaking at a press conference held at another host venue, the Accra Sports Stadium chairman of the organizing committee, Kwaku Ofosu Asare, said the Games will still be called Accra 2023 as initially planned. In football news, the African Cup of Nations Under-20 Games continues in Egypt. On Friday, Tunisia will play Benin Republic, while the young Copa Bullets of Zambia will trade tackles with the young Scorpions of Gambia. The Gambia beats Tunisia in the opening match of Group C on Tuesday in Alexandria, courtesy of Captain Alaje Sainis glancing header six minutes from time. On Saturday, host Egypt will hope to redeem their loss against the Flying Eagles of Nigeria when they face Senegal, 
kwa Mozambique will trade tackles with Nigeria. In cycling news, Belgian rider William Junior Leserf is a new Tour de Rwanda 2023 yellow jersey holder despite losing stage 5 to Callum Ormiston, who put up a stunning solo sprint to clinch the 195.5 km stage to Rubavu, Rwanda on Thursday. Ormiston, who rider for Team South Africa, rode his way to the finish line in Rubavu town after using 4 hours, 59 minutes and 51 seconds, opening a 6-second gap between him and the second place, Walter Calazzoni. Omilston, who rides for Team South Africa, rode his way to the finish line in Rubavu town after using 4 hours, 59 minutes and 51 seconds, opening a 6-second gap between him and second place Walter Calzoni and other 13 riders including Rwandan Eric Muhoza who were chasing him in the sprint. And that's it for this Friday's edition of Daybreak African Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. Have a nice weekend. And here now are our African-American and African history facts for today, February 24. On this day in 1864, Rebecca Lee became the first black woman to receive a degree as a medical doctor. Also on this day in 1867, Howard University was created by Congress. Also on this day in 1940, former world heavyweight boxing champion Jimmy Ellis was born James Albert Ellis in Louisville, Kentucky. Ellis won the World Boxing Association title after beating Jerry Quarry in April 1968. Did you know that Granville T. Woods was a 19th century inventor known as the Black Thomas Edison for his electrical engineering? Woods was born a free man on April 23, 1856. He taught himself electrical and mechanical engineering while working in railroad machine shops and steel mills. In 1887, Woods developed a device he called Synchronous Multiplex Railway Telegraph. The device not only helped dispatchers locate trains, it also allowed moving trains to communicate by telegraph. That's it for this Friday, February 24th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending your week with us. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of the entire Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton in Washington wishing you a great weekend. We'll see you again on Monday morning. 